So good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, as we continue to look at the most incredible prayer in all the Bible, the prayer that Jesus prayed to his Father the night before his crucifixion. And we said this prayer is simply divided into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, first of all. Next, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that had been with him for those three and a half years. And then Jesus prays for all believers. We are currently in the second main part of this prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples. There are those that were with him. And uh, as we have said before, guys, this scripture contains what was most on the heart of Jesus the night before, just hours actually before his crucifixion. Uh, actually, he's not worried about himself at all. What he's talking about is to his father is his concern for his disciples. And uh, these concerns are very important that we understand what's in the heart of Jesus for all of us as his disciples. But um, we have broken this down. These, this will cover verses 6 through 19 into uh, three main parts. First of all, that the Father would give grace to his disciples so that they would bring Jesus glory. Number two, that the Father would keep them. Keep them. We're looking at that right now. And number three, the Father would sanctify them. So let's focus in on that second one, that the Father would keep them. And uh, start with verse 11, where Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves drop down to verse 15 i do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one the devil and so guys jesus prayer to his father that he would keep his disciples from the devil falls into four basic parts or requests and i know that i might confuse you with all these numbers and Main points, sub points, try to work. You can always come up here and look at my, my notes if you'd like, take a picture, or go online tomorrow. They'll be up. You can even print them out if you want. Um, but we're under the heading of the, um, the three things that, that Jesus prayed uh, for his disciples at now, verses 6 to 19. First, that the Father would give them the grace to glorify Jesus' name. We talked about that, very important. But we're in the, the second one. That the Father would keep them. What does that mean to keep them? Well, we're working our way through, uh, through that, and it falls into four basic parts or requests. That the Father would keep them from damnation. In other words, that they would be eternally secure and kept from hell. Number two, that the Father would keep them from death. That Satan would not be allowed to kill them until their work for the kingdom that God had given them was finished. Number three, that the Father would keep them from division that they would always know unity with one another and number four that the father would keep them from defilement from the filth and defilement of the world 
Now we've already looked at those first two of those, and that brings us to number three, that the Father would keep them from division. Let me read verse 11 one more time. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And that statement by Jesus indicates that he was praying to his Father that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, would have unity with each other. That they might be one as we are one is the idea. Now, notice how the Lord connects unity in verse 11 with joy in verse 13. We're going to look at that in a minute, but I want you to just be thinking about it. Uh, but let me just say this, unity was on the heart of Jesus that night. Uh, you say, well, is that important that Jesus' disciples have unity with each other? Uh, absolutely. Unity, to say it's important, is an understatement. I love what David said in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The converse would be how terrible, horrible, and rotten it is when they don't dwell together in unity. And there's a lot of churches that will can testify of that. But guys, let me just say this. Unity leads to joy and victory, whereas division leads to strife and defeat. Very simply put, unity is of the Holy Spirit. Division is of the devil. It is the devil's goal to create disunity and strife because he knows that they create division and division will destroy families and churches and nations as we are dis discovering uh, in our own nation. I'll read you these two scriptures. You can write down the references, uh, these two on the subject. Matthew 12, verse 25, Jesus said, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house, house there is family, Divided against itself will not stand. Mark 3, verses 24 and 25. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. I, I believe that the scripture teaches that the family is the building block of the church and the church is the building block of society. And that's why it's always been Satan's strategy to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. In other words, divide, conquer, and destroy. Anything that God has created that brings joy, stability, and blessings into our lives. And that is why God has such strong admonitions and even condemnations for those who especially sow discord and disunity in the church. This is very important. Very important. You don't have to turn to it, but you all know Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 19, which says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Wow, strong language. Here they are. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and listen, one who sows discord among brethren. These are all very serious sins in the eyes of God. In fact, he calls them abominations. 
That is the language used of idolatry and uh, various forms of perversion with regard to idolatry. James 3, verse 16. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and, and every evil thing are there. Disunity will be the result. And because unity, guys, is essential for victory, and I'm thinking of victory over the devil, spiritual warfare was on the heart of Jesus that night, of course. Uh, but because unity is essential for victory, God commands us to do all that we can as believers to promote unity in the body of Christ. Uh, turn to Ephesians 4. I will have you turn to this one. Ephesians 4. And let's look at verse 3 where Paul admonishes us, Ephesians 4, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Remember I said unity was of the Spirit, Holy Spirit? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the Greek, Ephesians 4, 3 literally reads, being eager to maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit. The verb used here is a present participle, which means... It must, it, it's to be translated this way, we must constantly be endeavoring to maintain this unity. Why? Because it will constantly be under attack from the devil. He knows he can't defeat us when we're united. He has to divide us if he's going to conquer us and defeat us. That's why unity was so heavy on the heart of Jesus the night before the cross. He knew that when his people were united, they would be victorious. And when they were divided, they would be defeated. Very important point. Constantly maintain or endeavor to maintain spiritual unity, Paul said, because unity will be the one thing among others, but the one thing that will always be attacked by the devil, right? Let me tell you something about unity. It is impossible without humility. Let me say it again. Unity is impossible without humility. Now, let me talk to you about humility just for a few minutes. We've talked about this before. If you heard me teach this, bear with me. It's very important that we revisit this, right? What is biblical, uh, excuse me, what is biblical humility? First of all, understand that humility is listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. Let me read verses 22 and 3 to you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I checked, and that is the word humility. I have told you in the past that humility wasn't one of the fruits of the Spirit. It was more the soil of the heart that allows the fruit to grow. I was mistaken. It's here. It still, though, is one of those things that is uh, like a soil in your heart that allows all the other fruits of the Spirit to grow. Uh, just like pride is a soil that will choke out all the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life. But gentleness, and I checked the Greek on this next to other passages that definitely are translated humility. Same Greek word. So gentleness or humility and then self-control, right? When Jesus walked on the earth, he bore all the fruits of the Holy Spirit in his life, including and especially humility, which he actually manifested before his incarnation upon the earth. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Humility is not one of those subjects that gets people's engines racing. Not that interested. 
Tell me how I can be, you know, a dragon slayer. Wipe Satan out. And, you know, but, you know, if this is something that Jesus walked in, something that will, without it, you won't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You won't see unity. We need to study it. Jesus manifested humility even before he came to earth. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5, I'll read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. The idea is he humbled himself further. He became a man. That's how he first humbled himself. And then as a man, he humbled himself even further in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Let me say it again, guys. Very important. Unity would be impossible without humility. And humility would be impossible without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's because humility, and we're going to talk about this more in a moment. I'll just throw it out right now. That's because humility is an attribute of God. An attribute that Jesus manifested on the cross when he laid down his life for us, for sinners. Unity comes when we, I'm talking about unity now in the body of Christ. Unity comes when we humble ourselves by dying to self in loving and forgiving those who have wronged or hurt us. And we choose to have unity with them. If we only had unity with people we liked or people who were perfect, there'd be no unity in the body of Christ at all. The only unity we're ever going to see is the unity that comes when I choose to walk in unity, even as Jesus chose to walk in unity with his disciples, the Holy uh, God of the universe. Was his guys perfect? Give me a break. You know better. Now, we've all been hurt by people. I can hear, hear some people saying, look, uh, I just can't forgive this person who hurt me. I, I just, I don't have it in me to forgive them. All right, well, maybe you don't have it in you to forgive them for their sake. How about you do it for Jesus' sake? That, that's the point, all right? Are you going to deny Jesus' last request, you know? The request he prayed for just hours from the cross that his disciples would be in unity with one another. Andrew Murray, one of my favorite authors on this subject, said, and I quote, I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers the need for re of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. There is so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God in those who are called by his name. Let us consider how our lack of love, indifference to the needs and feelings of others, even sharp comments and hasty judgments that are often ex excused as being honest and, and um, straightforward are thwarting the uh, effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit on others. Manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride creeps in almost everywhere, and the, and the assemblies of the saints are not exceptions. 
Let's ask ourselves what would be the effect if all of us were guided by the humility of Jesus, that the cry of our whole heart might be day and night, oh, for the humility of Jesus in myself and in all those around me, end quote. Wow, I think you'd see quite a different church if we all made unity something we cried out to God for constantly. Now, let me just, at this point, define what true biblical humility is. True humility, and we've talked about this, but true humility isn't going around uh, putting yourself down. Now, I say that because a lot of Christians seem to think that being humble means they go around putting themselves down all the time. I'm nobody, I'm worthless, I'm a worm. Sometimes that's nothing more than pride masquerading as humility. Jesus said, learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was the epitome of humility, but he certainly wasn't a worthless worm. And he didn't go around putting himself down to everyone he came in contact with. Humility, guys, isn't self-loathing. It's not beating yourself up all the time. It's not the same as low self-esteem, by the way. Genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. Listen, it doesn't put self down. It doesn't lift self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether while it focuses on others. Humility has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. The vertical, vertical humility is really deals with our relationship with God. Vertical humility is simply the quality that understands, and this comes right out of John 15, verse 5, it's the quality that understands I am nothing and I can do nothing apart from God. I am nothing and I can do nothing apart from God. This causes me to depend on Him for everything. And my motto becomes, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because I'm not depending on my own strength. In me there lies nothing good. Now, you know, I just said that true humility doesn't go around saying I'm nothing, I'm worthless. Uh, that's true. We are nothing, we are worthless. It's just that that's between God and I. Um, I don't need to keep advertising it, declaring it. Look at me how humble I am. I'm telling you, I'm just so, I'm just a nobody. I'm a worthless wretch. I'm a worm. Well, yes, you are, but we don't want to keep hearing it. We, we don't want to keep hearing that. But it does manifest itself in the idea that, Lord, I am nothing. I can't do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do no, no thing, nothing. And the, and the quicker we learn that and understand that and try stop trying to offer God work, uh, you know, in our own flesh and so on, our own strength, and start relying on his strength, then we can say, when I am weak, acknowledging my own weakness, then I'm really strong because I'm relying on God to do what I can't do, right? This is a truth, guys, that in some ways takes humility to accept. Without it, pride takes root, and we become, listen, self-reliant instead of God-dependent. And the result is God will put us on a shelf. He will no longer use us in the work of building his kingdom upon the earth because God doesn't want self-reliant individuals serving him. He wants broken people who are trusting in his strength. That when he works, he gets all the glory because he deserves all the glory. 
That's vertical humility, my relationship with God. Horizontal humility deals with my relationship or our relationship to others around us. Horizontal humility simply says to those we come in contact with and minister to, here it is, you are more important to me than I am. And we say it and really mean it. You are more important to me than I am. That's exactly what Paul the Apostle, the Apostle commanded believers in Philippians 2, verse 3. He said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Exactly what we're talking about. When you constantly put others above yourself, and let me say something to you guys. None of us can do this in our own strength. We're t we have stepped into supernatural territory. When I talk about putting dying to self, putting others before yourself, saying you're more important to me than I am, we have crossed over into supernatural living because none of us can do this in the energy of our flesh. Why? Because the flesh will never let us do this. The flesh is all about itself and putting itself first. The very idea that I put others before myself, you're talking about the heart of a Christian and a spirit-filled Christian at that because carnal Christians don't even want to live this way. So if we're going to obey what Jesus is praying to his Father that would become a reality in the lives of his disciples on the night before he went to the cross, understand he's talking about supernatural, spirit-filled living. That's all there is to it. So with that in mind, let me say this. When you constantly put others above yourself and do what's best for them and not yourself, listen to this, you will discover how easy it becomes to walk in unity with others. And that the reason is because by you dying to self, it circumvents any attempt by Satan to use your pride, my pride, our selfishness, any desire for self-promotion, putting myself above others. It circumvents all of that that the devil will try to use to get you because you're not being honored as you should be. Because, you know, others are doing things in the church that you think you deserve to do, which causes division, disunity. If I put all that away, if I'm dead, Satan can't use a dead person to do anything. And you and I should have died a long time ago when we accepted Christ. Trouble is, we always kind of want to resurrect. The flesh wants to always resurrect itself and take dominance again. That's why we have to always walk in the Spirit, and we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But strife, division are caused by pride, self-promotion. And the idea is, guys, if we are understand that um, humility is the answer, but humility is impossible unless I'm really drawing close to God every day. Look, earlier I, I brought to your attention how the Lord connects unity in verse 11 with joy in verse 13. Let me just say this. I can tell you as a pastor, I have no greater joy than when our church is loving one another and walking in unity. I, I just have no greater joy. I think I speak for a lot of pastors. 
One, one uh, author said, and I quote, a church walking in unity with its members is probably the most powerful testimony the church can have because unity is so contrary to the selfish attitudes and the disunity manifested in the world and by the world, end quote. But let me say that the reason that unity brings such joy is because unity, listen, is almost a byproduct of walking in the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, it allows the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your life, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Guys, the Christian life doesn't promise perpetual happiness. It promises everlasting joy. Joy is an inner, unchanging quality of the heart, whereas happiness is a frame of mind based on outward circumstances. Again, joy is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22, which means, as we have said many times, it is an attribute of God. We can't produce the fruit of the Spirit through the works of our flesh. There's no way you can do it through hard work, raw determination. There is no way you can grunt and strain and sweat and work to be humble. And it's a very elusive thing, by the way, humility. It's like the young pastor who, uh, who's, you know, was pretty new to a church, young pastor. Uh, one day the uh, elders all got together and gave him a medal for being the most humble man in town. Only to take it away from him the next week when he wore it to church. So, you know, elusive is a, <laughs> humility is a very elusive thing. Right about the time you think you've achieved it, you've lost it. Therefore, you have to kind of not think about it. The goal can't be humility. The goal has to be Christ-likeness. And then everything else falls into place. Be like Jesus. How would Jesus handle this? What would Jesus say in this situation? And so on, right? If you always strive to be like Jesus, then you know what? Everything else will fall into place. But guys... The joy of the Lord, again, is a divine attribute only found in the nature of God. We can fake it. A lot of people fake joy, fake love, fake peace, and all the other fruits of the Spirit. We can fake it, but we cannot make it. It comes from God. The closest thing we can come to reproducing joy is the fragile, fleeting, and easily lost feeling of happiness, which I'm not putting down. I'm not saying happiness is bad. I'm just saying when you compare it to an attribute of God like joy, it is a cheap counterfeit to say the least. But listen, that's the closest we can get to joy in our human, from our human nature. I mean, uh, again, joy is a part of God's nature. The only way for joy to fill us is if God fills us. The only way for God to fill us, to fill us is when we accept Christ to be our Savior. That moment the Holy Spirit moves in, Peter tells us that at that moment we become partakers of the divine nature. Why? Because God's now living inside of us. God's living inside of us. And, as the, and we know the Bible says from that point, because we are now partakers of God's divine nature, God lives inside of us. It means we can now experience the fruit of the Spirit, joy, and all the other fruits of the Spirit in our hearts because the Holy Spirit now lives in our hearts. That's what causes the fruit of the Spirit to begin to grow in our lives. The Spirit of God has moved in. 
And it starts in the inward. It becomes inward attitudes before it ever grows out into outward actions. But guys, there is no joy in life apart from Christ. Until you are in Christ saved, joy is not a reality. You can't be happy, but you cannot experience joy. There is no true joy apart from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now hear me. Because joy comes from God, constant, and this is possible, although you may doubt it, because joy comes from God, constant, unbroken joy only becomes a reality through our abiding in Christ. This was the, one of the main topics of the evening before Jesus went to the cross, especially in John 15. Uh, where Jesus talked over and over about us abiding in him. Abiding in him. Turn to John 15, and let's look at verse 9. This was earlier in the evening, on their way to the Mount of Olives. But John 15, verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, very important. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus prefaced verses 9 through 11 of John 15 by, first of all, saying verse 7, if you abide in me, listen, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit, or in other words, you will have much joy. We have talked about abiding. Abiding is a Greek word that simply means to remain, to continue. If you continue walking closely with me, if you remain in my word, if you remain close to me, as Jesus is saying, this is where joy starts. But abiding or continuing, remaining in the Word of God is really a key. As Jesus talks about it here is the key to, to uh, Jesus' joy remaining in us and overflowing our lives. But guys, and I know that I don't have to say this, but let me just say it anyways. Um, abiding in the Word of God doesn't just mean hearing the Word of God, as important as that is. It doesn't mean that we just are hearers of the Word, but we must also be doers of the Word of God as well. James 1.22 makes that very clear. Jesus commanded us to obey his commandments. And when we do, he said his joy would remain in us and our joy would constantly be full. Again, John 15, verses 9 to 11. Well, that begs the question, what were the commandments Jesus commanded us to obey? Well, how about all of them? Okay, but certainly the ten. All right, certainly the ten commandments. So what, you know, if you if you keep my commandments, okay, well, what commandments? Well, certainly the Ten Commandments, basically. But I think in particular, the new commandment that he gave his disciples uh, in the upper room earlier in the evening, in, in uh, John chapter 13, where he said to them in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now we've talked about this, but this is all connected. So bear with me. 
How did Jesus love, love each other as I have loved you? How did Jesus love us? Well, he died for us. How are we to love one another? By dying for one another. Not literally, but figuratively. Dying to self. Again, putting others, uh, their needs, above our own. That's what we, and by the way, that's what's new about this command to love under the new covenant. A new commandment I give to you. All right, well, this is something different, right? In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, um, it's filled with exhortations to love. I'll give you one example. is Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus here makes everything new when he says, love one another, and this is important, as I have loved you. Or in other words, love others more than or above yourselves. Going back to Philippians 2, verse 3. That's how unbelievers, by the way, will know we are children of God, which is what Jesus went on to say in John 13, verse 35. By this all, all people, the world basically, will know that you are my disciples if you have love. The word is agape, God's love for one another. Guys, loving people as you love yourself, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant love. Loving people as you love yourself implies placing them on an equal footing with yourself. But loving them as Jesus loved us means to place them above yourself by dying to your needs and making their needs supreme. Guys, this is the greatest kind of love. And I know that you know this, but... Peter says, you know, sometimes it's important to put in remembrance what we already know because we tend to forget. But this is the greatest kind of love, the love of God, which is sacrificial and supernatural love manifested in the lives of God's people. Look at John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Let's go back and reread John 17, verses 11 to 13 one more time, and we'll close. John 17, actually verses 11 and 13. Verse 11, Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my disciples. And I have come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 13. And these things I speak, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Guys, I don't have to tell you this. We are living in a world where lo the love of many is growing cold. A world where unity with one another is for the most part, for the most part, is becoming a thing of the past. A world where happiness is being drained away from our lives because our outward circumstances are growing more and more difficult, distressing, and even depressing by the day. But while outward happiness is waning, our inward joy should be consistent and even growing. Why? Because our joy is based and built upon, listen, the never-changing reality of Jesus living in our hearts. That's why eternal security is such an important thing to believe. And I do believe it. 
Our joy is based upon the never-changing reality that Jesus Christ is in our hearts, the one who the Bible says is the, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, joy in the heart of a Christian is not like the always and constant changing outward circumstance of happiness. Happiness comes and goes, depending on the circumstance. Joy is a concept because it's built on a never-changing truth that once Jesus Christ moves into our heart through the Holy Spirit, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's why the Word of God says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And again, that's why Jesus prayed to his Father that his disciples would be kept in unity. Because unity not only brings victory over the flesh and the devil, it also brings joy. It's tragic. And let me end with this. It's tragic to see the devil being allowed. And, and he has to be allowed to do this. I mean, we have a free will. We, the devil can't overpower our free will. Didn't God even tell us this with regard to temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But with the temptation, God will always uh, uh, provide the strength that the temptation would not be so great you won't be able to bear it. God won't let Satan do anything to us against our free will. And so it's a tragedy to see the devil being allowed to destroy marriages and families and churches through bickering and backstabbing, through fighting and unforgiveness, which is causing division. And destroying the unity God desires his people walk in and Jesus died to make possible. Let me read one more scripture out of Ecclesiastes on this subject. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12. Two people are better, than, uh, are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Yes, two plus God provides incredible strength. And I'm talking about marriage in particular. A husband and a wife in unity, and then walking in unity with God, the devil can't defeat that. It's only when he works his way in and begins to sow discord, begins to get one or the other or both to feel like they're getting a raw deal, uh, their spouse is not making them happy, that was the deal, right? I marry you and you make me happy. Well, I don't know where you got that deal from. That's not my Bible. My Bible says that we enter marriage among Christian life in general to die to self to put the other first. If both people in marriage are doing that, dying to self, putting each other first above themselves, guess what? That's going to be a great marriage. A business arrangement marriage, 50-50, you, you know it's a business arrangement when you hear things like, that's not my job. 
that's not my job. 50-50, you're only getting 50% in your marriage. If you're each giving 100, you're both getting 100 back. Right? Guys, don't let the devil destroy your marriage or your family because of your selfishness, pride, lack of humility. Honor Jesus' requests. Die to self. Forgive those who have wronged you. Start with your marriage and promote unity in your marriage and family and your church for Jesus' sake. There's a lot of things I can't do for someone else. I can do anything for Jesus. So a lot of times I have forgiven people that really wronged me. Now, not, not that I haven't been on the giving end of that too. I'm not trying to tell you I'm perfect. But there have been people that have really hurt me over the years. And I can't really forgive them in my humanness. But then Jesus always whispers in my ear through the Holy Spirit, will you forgive them for me? I'll never say no to Jesus. I'll never say no to Jesus. For what he's done for me, I can never say, Lord, that's asking too much. May God give us the grace. We all need it. May God give us the grace to be people of the light in a dark world, showing God's love to a world filled with hate and hurt, a world that needs Jesus' love. May we be the instruments through which he uses to bring that love to this dying world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege. This, this isn't, you know, it's not like, Lord, you're uh, uh, asking too much or, uh, you know, whatever. It's a privilege to serve you. It's a privilege to serve others. Give us grace, Lord. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But we serve the Lord of life who died to bring us into oneness with each other that we might have unity and great joy in the Spirit. Lord, in these dark days where the devil is trying to divide and conquer your church, give us grace to be a unified church, a loving church, a church that is dead to self and putting others above ourselves for your glory. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.